water, um, water baptism is something that those of us in the Christian faith are quite familiar with. We have different ideas about baptism, obviously. How many of you come from a sprinkling background? Anybody come from a pouring background? Pouring, wow. Uh, how about a, a dunking background? All you dunkers? Yep, I figured we were dunking majority here. Um, complete immersion. Uh, the Nazarene, I, I grew up Pentecostal. The Nazarenes were our first cousins. Nazarenes actually, uh, generally a lot of Nazarenes will sprinkle, pour, or completely submerge. Uh, I think it all works. Obviously, it's metaphor and symbol. No metaphor captures all metaphor points. Um, we come from different traditions. Some of us come from baptismal regeneration backgrounds. That's fancy theological language for you can't even get into heaven until you've been baptized. Anybody from a baptismal regeneration background? Yeah, a bunch of us. Catholic, Church of Christ, little Pentecostal denomination I grew up in. We were double baptismal regeneration. We topped the Church of Christers. You guys had single baptismal regeneration. We believed you had to be baptized of water and spirit before you could go to heaven. So we had this conundrum in Acts 10 where Cornelius and his household received the Holy Spirit before they got baptized. That was always strange because we knew they had actually received the Holy Spirit. They, if, they, if they died on their way to the baptismal, they could have gone to hell with the Holy Ghost, which was kind of strange to us, but... Um, Lots of drivel, lots of theological drivel has been expended on this beautiful gift of baptism. Thankfully, most of us have grown, hopefully moved. Um, that may be presumptuous to say we've grown, but I think we've grown beyond some of those what I think are silly, rudimentary arguments about something so beautiful. Water baptism for Christians actually grows out of an ancient archetype that precedes us. Most religions like to believe that they were the first to come up with everything. But it's not true. Most of us, most world religions, including ours, actually tap into and play off of archetypes that existed in the heart of men long, heart of women long before our formalized religion grew. And there is an ancient archetype found in virtually every religion uh, as it relates to water. And, and the archetype is general, and I'll, I'll generalize, and then maybe we can get more specific with our faith, but water is this archetype um, of purification. The archetype is that water is a purifier. Water is a cleanser. Even more generally, water is a remedy of sorts. Uh, I've been introduced recently to an author... Uh, David Nico, great writer, and I was reading just this morning again some writing from one of his good works. You can look up David Nico, you would enjoy him. But uh, Nico talks about how in ancient Greece and Turkey, really about the time of the Judaic revival, the birth of early Judaism, uh, in ancient Greece and Turkey, diving off of a high cliff into water was a sacrament of sorts. And when I say sacrament, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but sacraments, sacraments essentially are religious rites, religious rituals that we do 
where we believe our ritual intersects with divine grace. They are these specified things that we do, formal and informal, where literally God's grace infuses the moment so profoundly. Uh, the old Celts used to call those places thin places, sacred spaces. Well, in ancient Greece and Turkey, in this high dive, first of all, a priest would stand beside, generally it was a young man, obviously in a patriarchal world, women did not have access to some of these things, but a young man would stand at the top of a high cliff and a, receipt would or a priest would recite stories of all the ancient heroes from their lore, and they would recite these stories to embolden the young man to jump, telling of the hero and the feet. There is also, and I think this is interesting, and this is true in most religions, and it's certainly true in ours. We call this the communion of saints. But there was a sense that as the priest was encouraging the young man with these stories of the ancient heroes, there was a sense that the heroes themselves came and they gathered around the young man to give him strength. That's exactly what Paul was writing about in Hebrews 11 when he lists this hall of fame of faith, you know, from Abraham and Sarah, Jephthah and Barak and Samson and Gideon and all of the patriarchs, and he said, seeing then that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us take courage. Let us lay aside the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience. There's this race set before us, and the apostles said that we, we have a great cloud of people who are witnessing us. They are the dead, we call them, in Christ, and they are conscious, and they are alive, and he said they're encouraging us. Um, Encouraging us to get on. And then the third thing that would happen at this dive is that friends and family would stand at the top of the cliff and the bottom of the cliff and they would shout words of encouragement to the young man. And finally the person would dive. And what would happen in that dive is so similar to what happens in most religious water rites. The young man would dive and his life would flash before his eyes as he sailed through the air not knowing if he would survive. And then down, down, down he would go. It was always a very high cliff. And finally he would break the water, shockingly. And he would go down, down, down into its depths. So far that he wondered if he would ever get back to the surface. He would experience the fear of death and the falling and even the fear of death deep in the waters. Oh, I can hear Paul saying, we're buried with Christ. Buried with him. In that place where oxygen ceases. Buried in a box, dirt thrown in your face, water covering you. Down into the depths, the substrate of our fears. Down not just into the external body of water, but down into our own soul. The young man would plunge. And then finally, with all of his might, he would struggle to get back to the surface. And finally, supported by God's grace, he would emerge, reborn from the waters to the cheers of the people. About the time of Jesus, a great Jewish scholar and historian, Pliny the Elder, he said that Sappho, who was an excellent diver, dove from a cliff at Lesbos from Pliny's writings. He said he dove that he might transcend earthly love. There was all types of writings about these kind of divings, always done for a spiritual experience. Sappho dove, Pliny said, to transcend earthly love. Globally, for millennia, 
the ritual plunge. Anybody ever took a ritual? Anybody ever done an Arctic plunge? Anybody ever done an Arctic plunge? Some of you crazy people have done an Arctic plunge. Uh, Nina and Hutch and Haven, Melissa and Ben's kids, uh, just the other day, 65, 62 degrees, they jumped in a swimming pool. That was an Arctic plunge. Stan Jr. and some of the buddies in the senior high group here were out at the lake yesterday. Can you believe it? Out at the lake, swimming in the lake. Crazy. And yet for millennia, from all around the world, from the Occident to the West, forever, this idea of the ritual plunge, whether it's an Arctic plunge or other, plunges have been taken. We know we're made up of water. We know that there's something spiritual about water. Plunges have been taken to prove everything. They were used judicially for centuries to prove people's innocence. Plunges have been taking, taken to prove love and caring. They've been taken to prove um, daring and courage. Well, to Christian baptism now. Our, our baptism is born of deep, deep human roots, religious roots. Specifically, ours grows out of our, our Jewish roots. And when we talk about archetypes, our baptism is a plunge into the archetypal, the symbolic death of Jesus Christ. I mentioned it a while ago. Paul said we're buried with Christ. I don't know that we pause long enough to think about what Paul is saying there. I'm going to take children in my hands in just a minute, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and bury them in the waters of baptism and they will traverse two millennia to that holy moment, that sacred part of the gospel. We so often say that the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the death was also the burial of Jesus. Death is a sacred process, the letting go of ego, the letting go of a lower self, the letting go of sin, all of those things that we call it, the letting go of our brokenness, our shame. Death is a sacred process, be it biological or spiritual. And it is such a sacred process that in our gospel, in our paschal cycle, that cycle that Jesus moved through as the archetypical life, there was life and there was death. And and then the death wasn't immediately followed by a resurrection. There was this whole holy process of burial. Every culture does their burials different. But I remember my favorite author, Frederick Buechner, talking about how his father died. And there was this subliminal sense that one day he would meet his father again. But there was no transition. There was no funeral. There was no service. His mother simply explained to him, we will never talk about this again. Buechner, as an 11-year-old boy, woke up one morning with his father peering through the door into his bedroom. His father smiled at him, went down to the garage below, and with exhaust took his life. Beekner woke up as an 11-year-old boy, rushed to the window as he heard the commotion with his father laid out in the driveway. And the shame of all of that in the 1930s was so severe, and the family were a blue-blood aristocratic family from the East that... There was nothing. And Beekner years later talked about the desperate need to come to grips with the holiness, the tragedy, the sacredness, the despair, the, the vast complexity of death just with a process. And later he went through that process, decades later, 
But it is right. Some people think it's morose, morbid, moribund, all of those things. They think it's a macabre thing that we, and maybe some of our rituals do get into the domain of the extreme. But Christ died. Paul said the good news was that he died and he was buried. And the burial is a part of the good news. The awareness of a, of a soul, the awareness of a group of people to know that this that somehow grief is existential testimony to the worth and the value of the thing that's been lost. As Walter Storff, Nick Walterstorff said, lament is love song. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. Not accepted and tolerated. Blessed are those who mourn. And the good news is the burial. And I've talked before here about the fact that the first people who saw Jesus after his death were not people going to attend to a resurrection. The Bible says the women were going to tend to his body in burial form. And Jesus appeared to them. It was not people taking care of the resurrection. It was people taking care of the burial that Jesus gave the resurrection to. How about that? And so Christian baptism, Paul said, not to be morose, but Christian baptism, I will take children in my hands and I will bury them with Christ. A friend of mine in South America, when he baptizes, he's an extreme case, but he's a great man. When he baptizes people, he takes them in his hands and he says, I kill you in the name of Jesus. The first time I heard that, I thought, gosh, that's rough. And yet there's something about that. When you consider the vast beauty of the cycle of life, I kill you in the name of Jesus. Christian baptism is a plunge into the archetypal death of Jesus. Specifically, Paul said, we are buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And here's the beautiful part. We're buried down, down, down. The really mean folk, I always joke with the kids. If, if a kid's particular rowdy, I always look at him when I'm talking about baptism. I said, your mom told me to hold you under till you bubble. <laughs> Down into the death. And I remind them, when you get under those waters, it's scary. You can't breathe there. It is the place of death. But we don't, we don't leave you long. Because Paul said we rise to walk in newness of life. And so that's why I always have you bring your kids in and I sit with them and say, are you really ready to treat your sister differently? I tell kids, I don't care if they're eight years old, I tell them this will be one of the five most monumental experiences in your life. You may not experience it such immediately, but looking back, your baptism is a linchpin of your life. You'll spend the rest of your life growing into your baptism. Can you say amen? amen? The rest of your life growing into the fullness. Whether it happened to you as an infant, a five-year-old, you will spend the rest of your life. I look at the picture of Stan Jr. when I went out that little community, Fernvale, on the left there before 96 runs into 100. We turned back in there and went to a farm owned by friends of mine. We got down the Harpeth River and a bend of that river, a little pool of water. He was five years old. 
and he believed he was ready and I knew that he would spend the rest of his life growing into this so I took him down to the water and I remember as I was just about to bury him to kill him in the name of Jesus I remember he saw a big chow dog swimming and he got so tickled that he couldn't pull himself together I thought, boy, here we are in the depths of spirituality. I can't get him to pull it together, Doug, because there's chow dogs swimming over here. And in the middle of, the, in the middle of my over-seriousness, something spoke to me and said, this is for coronations of kings. Beekner said it was, it was in the coronation of kings for great laughter and great tears mingled. His great laughter at the sight of a dog swimming in the water may be as holy as your great tears of sobriety and with that laughter still abounding I took him down in the water and when I did my mom was up above and she took a picture I still got it it's blown up it was perfect he went down into the waters and the picture is of him completely submerged in his father's hands in his father's hands in the hands of a mother or father greater than mine. And his little body was all 47 pounds of it flat there beneath the water, pristine, clear, and his arms went completely out. Buried with Christ in baptism. And no more would I hold him in that death than God would. And I pulled him up almost yanked him from the death and when he came up out of the water those little hands went into the air and he rose to walk in a new life death to the first Adam or as psychologists have labeled in recent years you see all modern science does is give labels to ancient truths death to the first Adam Paul called him Jung and Freud called it the ego, the lower self. Death to the ego, rebirth of the second Adam, Paul called him, the Christ, the archetype. Death to the ego, life to the true self. This is what Paul was talking about, death to the ego, new life to the true self, finding, finding inside of you that image of God Paul said, by the time God is through with us in this soul-making, Christ-making universe, he will make Christ of us all or destroy us lovingly in the process. He, Paul said, will simply stand, Jesus, as the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Do you know what it means that Jesus is your older brother? He is born of the same substance. We have heard the same word. And in our baptism, the same spirit descends. And the same heavenly voice says, you are my beloved daughter. And you, I am well pleased. Baptism, we take five-year-old children. I buried a 101-year-old man one time in the waters of baptism. And we take these five-year-olds and 101-year-olds, and Paul says we fill up in their body the sufferings of Jesus, which are incomplete, because this full life that was lived in the person of Jesus is incomplete. You know why it's incomplete? It's not incomplete because it was less than full. It's incomplete because it will not be completed 
by anybody other than you. And even he said in that language of our scripture that he will not go back to the throne until he takes us with him. To him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. There is this unification, this moving into our elder brother. Romans 8, if so be that you suffer with him, you will also be glorified together with him. Philippians 3.10, oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable even unto his death. A sacrament is an act or a ritual with a result of grace that exceeds it. Let me say that again. A sacrament is an act, it's a ritual with a result, a grace that exceeds it. And the question of Christ that arises out of this water archetype, the question of Christ came to his disciples as he neared Jerusalem one day. Now this is the Christ who sprang from the carpenter's shop and he walked down onto the bank of the Jordan River as thousands of people attended to his cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, preached until all of Israel went out to hear him preach. And the Bible said as John the Baptist preached, the people were so overwhelmed with his preaching that they would go down into the river and they would immerse themselves. That was baptism. In the first century, people didn't have to put their hands on people and baptize them. All the way back into Grecian times, people would go and they would hear a philosopher and a philosopher generally taught by a body of water and as the philosopher taught if the people bought what that philosopher was saying they would go down to the water and pour water on their head or they would immerse themselves saying I'm immersed in the ideology, the zeitgeist, the worldview of this teacher I will follow this rabbi the Hebrew people our water rite originally from which baptism sprang was a water rite of physical cleansing you remember in the Levitical law, if somebody had psoriasis or leprosy, any of these bodily conditions, these contagions were considered bad for the community so the people would be ostracized. And the only way they could come back into community is if they were cleansed. And that either had to happen supernaturally or naturally. And upon them believing that they were sufficiently clean and clear of these diseases, they would show themselves to the priest, and if the priest said that they could be welcomed back into the community, the priest would often, in ceremonial form, bring the person, pour water over them, and the people would know they were clean. If they weren't clean, literally, think about this, in community, the people would have to live apart from their family. They would have to live on the outskirts of the village. And if anybody, even those who loved them, came near to them, they would have to put their hand over their mouth and they would have to scream, unclean, unclean, at which point the person would divert. Think about the stories of Jesus and the touching of lepers. Water was a cleansing form it was a purifier. How scandalous was it when Jesus stood on a mountain one day, maybe in Samaria, where all of the spiritual dogs lived, to the Jewish people, the Samaritans were dogs, and it may have been a mountain in Samaria that Jesus chose to sit down on a rock and look at a group of people, almost unsavable, unsalvageable, and unredeemable in the minds of the elite. And he opened up his mouth and said, blessed are you. 
Blessed are you if you're meek. Blessed are you if you're hungry and thirsty. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who within the economy of man's religious form are so deeply impoverished that most consider them without access, marginalized. Blessed are you. And then he looked at the Pharisees over their shoulders who were there, and he said, except your righteousness exceeds these, you will not inherit the kingdom. For you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And if those words were not scandalous enough, upbraiding, overturning, upsetting enough, the Bible says, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus walked down the mountain having scandalized the religious, having encouraged the weak, and as he walked down the mountain, Matthew 8, we often miss this, but Matthew 8 begins that immediately at the base of the mountain, at the base of the mountain, a leper came to him, and the Bible said the first thing that Jesus did, Bobby, when he saw the leper was he looked at the Pharisees and he touched him. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Jesus said, I am a living water. No longer will you need the ritual of the priest. One touch from me, and I will cleanse you. You'll drink, and you'll never be thirsty again. On the last day, the great day of the feast, when they tipped the water pots, and the water rolled down the steps of the temple, like the righteousness and the mercy and the grace of God approaching the people, Jesus saw their hunger, and he cried out, if anybody's thirsty, let them come and drink from me water. Let them drink from me, for as the scripture is said, out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. Water rights. And so the Hebrew people longing for a Messiah in those centuries before Jesus, some of them begin to quest for this Messiah with acts of holiness and separation, severe asceticism, they became almost cultish little break-off groups from Judaism that would move away from society and they would live out in the desert. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumram? The Dead Sea Scrolls come from a little group of people, the Essenes, that had broken away from the Jewish people. They were separatists and they thought if we could get holy enough that maybe the Messiah would come to us. We think John the Baptist came from that group of people. He lived out in the desert very well may have been at Qumram, not far from where he lost his head. These people took the water rites of their Jewish roots and instead of cleansing people's outer body of psoriasis and leprosy and other skin diseases, they parlayed those water rites. Now this is probably 150 to 200 years before Jesus these Jewish separatists parlayed those water rites and they created little baptismal pools. And if you wanted to be a part of the Essenes, if you wanted to be a part of one of these little separatist holiness groups that were going to events or evoke the coming of the Messiah, you would promise to live a holy and a perfect life and upon promising that, they would always have a ceremony for you and before you could come in, you had to immerse yourself in a pool of water. This was the community that John the Baptist came from. Christianity did not invent baptism. 
Some people, again, in their religious hubris, they want their religion to have created everything. I think it's deeply moving to know that, that we are joined in so many ways and that these truths were bubbling up long before us. And so when John the Baptist came out of the wilderness preaching that the Messiah was coming, it was natural for him from his religious background, a form of Judaism, to baptize people. And so he stood down by the riverbank and the people were baptized. And I tell the kids all the time when they sit with me, you know one of the best reasons to be baptized? It's not just because Jesus is the baptizer. One of the best reasons to be baptized is because Jesus was baptized. That great archetype himself was baptized. He who came from God and went to God, he was baptized. And as Jesus moved through the crowd that day and John was preaching and the people were dunking themselves in the water, the Bible says John looked up and at first he saw his cousin from the carpenter shop and then he had that second, that cinematographic moment of the second look mesmerizing and he looked and he didn't see the cousin. He said, oh my God, behold. And he had to laugh and he had to cry at this coronation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as Jesus made his way through the crowd, John the Baptist had to laugh himself silly. He had to sit down on a rock and say, it's you, cousin, it's you. Oh, the ways that God comes to us, the methods that he chooses. And he works his way through the crowd and he comes to John the Baptist and as John the Baptist stands there in rapt awe, John says, I am not even worthy to reach down and untie your shoes. Looks at the people and says, I've got to decrease that he might increase. The ego must die that the true self must live. The first Adam buried, the second Adam alive. That's what he's saying. He's saying something that he doesn't even know. It's bigger than what he knows. I must decrease that he may increase. And then Jesus looked at him and Jesus says, would you baptize me? And John the Baptist says, me? Baptize you? No, I can't even put my hands appropriately on your shoestrings. I can't baptize you. You baptize me. And Jesus looked at him and said, no, I must be baptized, the old King James says, to fulfill all righteousness. Just make it simple. Jesus said, I must be baptized because it's the right thing. What is baptism? Well, I can promise you it's not the thing that saves you any more than it saved Jesus. Those who are safe don't need saving. But as Jesus went down in the waters at the hands of his cousin, I wonder if his arms went out. When he came up out of the water, it was then that the Spirit descended and the voice said, three of the Gospels say that the voice said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Speaking in the third person to the crowd, this is my Son. Luke's Gospel, I think, gets it most right. Luke's Gospel says that the voice said, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. 
Baptism is not a proclamation to others. It's a proclamation to the baptized. You are mine. And immediately the Bible said, wet with the waters of baptism, fresh with that voice in his ear, Jesus having buried the ego, having buried the life that could have been safe, Jesus bearing the life that could have lived long. This is Martin Luther King Jr. at the dinner table with the bomb threat and two children sleeping in the back room hearing the voice that says, stand up. Stand up. This is the laying down. This is the diving off of the cliff with no promise of breaking the water back the second time. And the Bible says with those words ringing in his ears, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. He was immediately driven by that same gentle dove spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted, tempted by what Freud called the id, what we call the devil, tempted by those voices that assault us, our true self. We have tried to bury the ego. We have tried to bury the lower self. We have tried to bury the first Adam. We have heard the superego. Freud couldn't bring himself to call this voice divine, but we call this voice God. We know the creator that says, you are my beloved son, but immediately there is that argument with the Satan, the accuser, and wet with the waters of baptism, deep in the wilderness, the voice said, if you really are the son of God, turn bread or turn stone into bread. Do you hear what he's saying? If you are the son of God, perform, pull a rabbit out of the hat, prove it. If you really are who the voice says you are, perform, do right, act right, think right, strive, toil. But instead the Bible says that Jesus fasted not simply from food, but he fasted from miracle. And it is far easier for the Son of God to fast from food than from miracle. Jesus did not simply fast with, from food. He fasted with any sense of needing to justify himself. For his belovedness was not justified by what he did. His belovedness was justified by whom and whose he belonged to. Whose he was. And Jesus looked at a rock that he could have turned into a mountain of bread. And he had no need. And it was this Jesus, this baptized one, who carries this baptismal voice that calls him beloved. He carries that to the end of his physical, earthly life. And on his way, this is what I tell the children when I sit with them. On his way to the cross, the Bible says one day, very near that place, he turned around, understanding he was soon to die. He turned around, Buck, and he looked at his disciples, and he asked them a question. He said, can you be baptized the way I'm baptized? What a terrible tragedy that we would turn that question into a question of sprinkling or immersion or pouring or as a friend of mine believes every person has to be 
baptized in running water. So there's got to be water coming in and going out. And if you're baptized in a porcelain tank like this, it doesn't work. Oh, what a terrible religious diminishment of spiritual truth. Doug, when Jesus said, can you be baptized the way I'm baptized? He wasn't talking about the Jordan. He wasn't talking about sprinkling or immersion. Jesus knew that baptism and water were simply gifts and sacraments that indicated something far deeper. Baptism was immersion and the water was a way of life. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, can you live this life? That's why I sit down with your kids and say, hey, I've gone to baptism before with people. And I have realized upon baptizing them that they were just satisfying their parents and their friends and they were just doing something kind of perfunctory that everybody does. And I don't want to do that with you because you'd just be getting wet. The question is whether you're 101 or whether you're five years old, can you live this life? Can you be baptized the way Jesus was baptized? I said with Chris's three little ones the other day, I think they got it. I think they got it. Jackson, can you treat Sadie and Amelie better? That's why I always use that example. Can you walk onto the playground and can you see all the kids gathering? And can you, can you begin to notice that one kid perennially doesn't get picked? Can that start bugging you? Can it start getting under your skin when you see a dog tied up in the backyard with no dog house and it's 10 degrees outside? Can creation start mattering? Can people start mattering? Can life start mattering in a way that it just all looks different to you now? It's amazing that Jesus didn't say, can you be crucified the way I'm crucified? That would have been too harsh upon their ears. But months now, years now, away from that Stupendous place for the dove came. Who can't see a dove fall? Who can't hear the voice say, you are my beloved? But baptism is bigger than doves and sweet voices. Baptism is a change of life. Baptism was where you stand up at the dinner table as a 36-year-old young man and you hear the voice say, I will never leave you. I will never leave you alone. Be strong. Stand up. Change your life. Go a different direction. Find the current of the universe and dive in. The question of Christ is follow me. The question of Christ is, are you willing to take this dive? Are you willing to take this, pl this plunge? The question of baptism is, will you follow me? I promise you that if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. If you bury the ego, you will find the true life.
Baptism, Nico said, is a plunging of the ego into the water. Baptism is a plunging of this first Adam, the old self, into the water. And the water is the grace that dissolves it. No wonder the old Hindu scripture says that the sea dissolves our name. Ha, the sea dissolves that name that was given you here because we all have a heavenly name. Just as diving is a symbol of daring the death of the ego, diving is that kid at the top of the diving board with all of his friends saying, go chicken. Diving is daring the death of the ego and all of its frantic clinging to fear and desire. And Jesus said, Paul said, to resurface from the water is to be reborn in the likeness of Christ. No wonder Jesus said, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit to see the kingdom of heaven. Finally, a leap is a metaphor of two extremes. And anybody who stands here and sees only two and a half feet of warm water. Anybody who stands here and does not see the high cliff down, down, down into the death of Christ. Down, down, down into an abandonment of the life that doesn't matter and a finding of the one that does. A leap is a metaphor of two extremes. It's the fear of risk and it's the surrender to it. Diving down, down, down into the pain and the predicament. It is a total letting go. And as one man said, fear dives in, but it is courageous love that climbs out. And finally, Carl Jung said, if there is a fear of falling, the only safety is in deliberately jumping. If there is a fear of falling, the only real safety is in a deliberate jumping. So, as our brothers and sisters prepare to be baptized today, the promise is newness of life, but the newness of life is coming up from the water. The question is, will you go down? The question is, Will you take superficial life? Will you take ego? Will you take fear? Will you take shame? Will you take estrangement? Will you take all of these things? Will you take your brokenness? And will you let it go? And will you allow it to be washed away? Will you take the plunge? All of us have seen by now on YouTube the picture of the preacher. If you hadn't seen it, look it up. The preacher's down in the water. He's baptized several people, and he turns Kenny to the left, waiting on the next baptismal candidate. And out of nowhere, this kid comes flying through the air, and he cannonballs the baptism. <laughs> I thought to myself when I first saw that as a sober, serious preacher, I thought... I would take that young man by the nap of the neck, march him right back up and say, when you're ready to be baptized and not go to the swimming pool, meet me there. 
But I think now, Stan, I would ask him, could you explain that sacrament to me? It may have just been a cannonball, but maybe that's exactly the way we should come to the waters of baptism. Maybe we should come laughing at nature swimming downstream. Maybe we should come crying at our shame and our wounds and the abuses we've endured. Maybe we should come as the coronation of kings with great laughter and many tears. As Frederick Buechner said in that moment, it was as though the divine hand struck me across the face. Atlantis rose up out of the sea and the great wall of China fell and a soul was reborn. Oh, brothers and sisters, Christian baptism isn't simply something we do to get in the club. Christian baptism is our high dive. It is the courage to descend to the substrate of life and come again that we might be reborn in the image of our older brother. Some of you who are baptized are thinking to yourself, I've never thought about all of that. I didn't know that's what I did. Do I need to be rebaptized only in your heart every day? And this is the taking up of the cross. This is the taking up of the baptism. To every day find my baptism. I've told you before about a friend of mine who is a lawyer, graduated from elite schools, but beside his desk, instead of all of those elite certificates as a high-powered lawyer, instead of all of that, right beside his desk at his big downtown corner office, he has his baptismal certificate. And when I asked him, Pam, why is your baptismal certificate there? He looked at me and said, because every day I am tempted in this place, in this job, to live less than I am. And every moment, every time I'm tempted, Doug, he said, I look up at that certificate and remind myself, I am a baptized person. I am a baptized person. Yesterday, somebody told me, they said, you have shown in this last year such courage. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. I'm as scared as anyone. It's not courage that I've shown. I simply remember, or at least try to remember every day of my life, I am a baptized person, and I try to remember the archetype of that baptism Christ. And I remember the life that I'm called to, and I cannot live below. So to that end, I would love for you just to still your hearts for a minute as baptized people. Quiet your heart. For those that are going to be baptized, I would love for you to stand as the others are just waiting. All of those that are going to be baptized, if you would come to the left and meet Randy and those that are going to help you, I want you guys to get ready to be baptized. Our hearts are still before you, sweet Christ, first baptized. Those of us that have perhaps never been water baptized, our hearts are open to you now. 
If this is the way of our faith, we will do this, Lord. The majority of us that have been baptized, we dig back into the archives now of our soul. And I remember that 10-year-old boy named Stan. Revival Center United Pentecostal Church down in a little town called Paragul in the cold waters of baptism. It fit me the way Saul's armor fit David. As a 10-year-old boy, even now at 47 years old, that baptism hangs off me loosely, scarcely finding a snug fit. Oh, but the joy of growing into these clothes, the joy of growing into this baptism. We search our hearts now, Lord, as we consider our own baptism. As we consider this baptism of Christ, are we growing into it? Are we growing up and into it? Is it fitting us better now? Is your heart our heart? Are we finding that current of the universe? Oh God, we thank you today on this day of baptism. We celebrate today our own baptisms. We celebrate them. We grow into them. We renew them and we recommit to them. Thank you for this thing called newness of life. May we live as baptized people even today. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.